Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Eric Cole. Eric is the CEO and founder of Secure Anchor Consulting, and he's an established author who will have a total of eight published books after the release of Cyber Crisis at the start of June. In the episode, we dive into the common themes between entrepreneurship and authorship and how he became successful in both. Quick note before we start, if you have not already, please, please, please subscribe and leave a quick review for the podcast. It really does help. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you studied computer science in undergraduate and graduate school, but while you were getting your graduate degree, you actually ended up working for the CIA at the same time. Tell me about that experience. So I remember I was sitting in a programming class and this was a Fortran programming class because back in the 80s, computer science was really double E on steroids. (laughs) And I was asking myself, do I really want to do this for a living? Is this what I want to do? So I went down to the co-op office and it just turned out that the CIA was recruiting the next day on campus. So I interviewed, got a job with them. And then interns for the CIA, you're fully cleared, you have full poly, but you're a free resource to them. So when you're going and talking to these departments, it's a reverse interview. So I'm talking with the networking folks, a programming group, an analysis group, and this little group called cybersecurity. And they were all trying to convince me to go there. And I go and talk to my advisor, and professors, and they're like, Eric, the future is networking. Networking is where you got to go. If you know networking, (laughs) you're going to win the game. And I don't always listen. I take advice, but I don't always listen. And I said, that cybersecurity sounds really, really cool. So I went in that office and started realizing there was no way to verify the security of systems. So that actually began a career of eight years where I was a professional hacker for the CIA. Wow. So Was that your first exposure to the security field? Was just the CIA, learning the CIA had a dedicated team for that? Yes, I I went in uh, very naive and very green where I took my programming classes and others and it was really just understanding how to protect systems. And just to, to date myself a little, my first project at the Office of Security was the agency was looking to go to this brand new operating systems, Windows NT, and they (laughs) needed me to test, verify, and validate whether it was a secure enough operating system to use in-house. Hmm. What were some of the other unique experiences from that CIA time that you don't think you could have gotten elsewhere? Probably the, the biggest experience was really the ability to learn. One of the things that I always urge folks, I have a son who's in college and I'm urging him to also go for the government. Not only is it great to serve your country in whatever capacity you want, but there's a huge, huge learning budget. So my first couple of years when I was with the Office of Security, I spent seven to eight months learning, training, and the other three or four months doing projects. So they really invest in you to learn that. The second biggest thing was they actually gave me money to buy a lab. So in my office, I had a huge rack with 30 different servers and essentially two hours a day, I would just sit there and learn how to hack, break in vulnerabilities and understand and build out the processes. So really just having that mechanism to learn, take training and understand how the system works is invaluable. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I think to parallel that, right? That's one of the advantages that's often seen in in big corporations today early in someone's careers. Uh, the same way the government was providing those sort of valuable resources, those larger organizations often have the larger training budgets and uh, shared resources, whatever it might be. So after your your CIA experience, you mentioned that it was about eight years. I think that was around, uh, is it 2004 or so when you left the CIA? Uh, actually, 2007. So, so a c- couple, couple years later. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, and so you'd gotten your, your PhD while you were working for the CIA as well. So really just trying to, to double time your career over the course of that, that seven years. And then, sorry, sorry. Actually, I apologize. I got the years mixed up. I actually left the CIA nineteen ninety seven, not two thousand and seven. I, oh. I I got about a decade a decade of confusing myself. So left the CIA nineteen ninety seven. <laughs> worked at some companies, and then got my PhD in two thousand and four. Awesome. Yeah, quite a bit of experience in your background there. So, then reflecting on on that time in your career again, so many different experiences that you had. What opportunities really stand out to you as you look back on your career uh, in shaping the professional that you are today? So when I realized that the agency, and I, I would have done it again, I do not regret the experience at all. But what I realized is I'm really more of an entrepreneur type person. And I don't do as well with fixed rules and regulations, which is very uh, depicable of the government. So, so when I left there, I went with smaller startup companies. And one in particular was TSGI, where I became their CTO. And we actually built that up and sold out to Lockheed Martin. And then at Lockheed Martin, I was their chief scientist uh, working on all of their cybersecurity incidents over the entire company. Then I went and was CTO of McAfee. What I really learned over all of those experiences that you have to really be able to communicate cybersecurity in a way that people can understand. Because I, I see this all the time where you have these brilliant technical people at companies and they're frustrated, they're angry, they're irritated. And you hear them say, well, the organization doesn't understand me. They, they, they don't get me. They're not giving me the resources that I need and, and not trying to be mean uh, or anything like that, but I'm like, look in the mirror, right? They, they don't understand you because you're not communicating well, not them. So that's something I learned early on that you got to sort of check your ego at the door and really focus on making sure the other person understands the problem set in order for you to be able to solve it and get the resources. Do you have any quick tips for remediating that today? So if someone's listening and they feel that way within an organization, uh, is there any kind of tangible advice you can give them to better communicate the value of cybersecurity in their organization? Yeah, so uh, the first one would be uh, listen before you speak. A lot of times with security people, we go into meetings and we want to be the first one that, that speaks and jumps in. I always have a rule that unless you're directly called on, listen for at least five minutes. My second rule is ask three questions before providing an opinion. Because very often, we don't know really what the environment is, the organization, and how that's working. So if you ask some questions to get clarification, then you can better go in and focus the question. And finally, to me, I don't care what position you're in, whether you're a CISO, a security engineer, or a junior position, any organization you're working for, you must be able to answer the question, what business are they really in? How do they make money? 
and what differentiates them from the competition. Because if you don't understand that, then you're treating security as cookie cutter and not customized. And to me, that's why we have many, many problems today because people really don't understand the environment they're trying to secure. How have you, over the course of your career, dealt with the challenge of customization of security versus scale of security, both within an organization and across organizations? So I, I take everything and break it down into sort of repeatable processes. So when you're going in and working with an organization, there's some fundamental components that are always there. For example, when you look at cybersecurity, there's always three things you have to focus on. You always have to focus on risk. You have to focus on the critical data. And you have to focus on the risk of that critical data being disclosed, altered, or denied access. That's always fundamentally true. But where you customize is you say, okay, let me understand what is your critical data? What makes it unique and different? And what is your big concern? Does that critical data need to go in and be secured against disclosure? Do you have to have integrity? Do you have to prevent against denial of access? And then what are the biggest threats and vulnerability to your organization? So I have a systematic process where I always go in, ask the same questions, go through the same process. So it's scalable, but based on the input I'm getting, that's where the customization of the solution comes in. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back to the to the timeline a little bit here. You now have published several books. You're a renowned author in the security space. When did you actually publish your first book? Uh, my first book uh, was published, Hackers Beware, and that was actually uh, 2002. Wow. So what inspired you to start writing in the first place? One of the things that I love to do is to really go in and help other people is to really teach other people and expand their knowledge base. I was at SANS for a long time, built a lot of the top cybersecurity courses that were out there. So I had all this knowledge and information and I was teaching courses and I realized there's a lot of people that need to understand about cybersecurity in early 2000 because it was a newer field, but they couldn't necessarily afford training or be able to get away. So I'm like, I want to be able to put together a book that really goes in and shows the attacks, how they work, and then break them down to come up with systematic ways to prevent, detect, and secure your organization. How did that first book either meet or maybe evade expectations um, with the work that you'd put in and, and the different marketing efforts that you had and, and so on and so forth? The good news is when, when I put together my first book, I had fairly low expectations, uh, so, so, so it was pretty easy to meet. But, but, but the thing I'll tell you, especially with very technical books like Hackers Beware and a few of the others, if you're back then, if you're selling twelve or 15,000 total, that's considered a really, really good book in the technical space. But when you all is said and done, you're not going to walk away with a lot of money. So to me, I urge anyone, if you have the desire to write a book because you want to share your knowledge and you want to help other people and you're willing to put in the time, energy, and effort, definitely do it. But if you think that it's going, your first book is going to make you a ton of money, be a bestseller, and get you all this notoriety, then don't write a book because it takes a long time <laughs> to get there. So how long were you working on that one? Th that one... Uh, was about a six-month effort. Uh, 
when, oh. I, when I write books, I tend to do them different than other people. I want to get them knocked out in a short period. So when I decide that I'm going to write a book, I go in and at least two, sometimes three days a week, I block off entire days. Because the way that I work is I can do about five pages in an hour. So in eight hours, that's 40 pages or one chapter. So my goal is always a chapter a day. So I'll go in and say, okay, we'll block out Wednesday and Saturday and we need 15 chapters. So that essentially means eight weeks that we need to block out. And I just go in and consistently every week, just knock it out to me. That's the trick is you have to get a strategy, a schedule and stick with that non-negotiable because a lot of people, they go, oh, they're going to write a little bit here, write a little bit there. And the problem is you forget what you wrote and it ends up <laughs> taking forever or the book never comes out. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really impressive. One, in being able to block that time out in, in the first place, given I'm sure the other craziness in your schedule, but then also being able to, to stick to it over time. I've heard a lot about just how different authors, like you said, have different tendencies as far as writing. Uh, but it sounds like you don't have the same challenge as far as writer's block, at least on on an ongoing basis, uh, which I'm sure helped out with that that process and the expedition of uh, the the writing process. So moving on a little bit, you mentioned your kind of entrepreneurship tendencies. You did end up founding a cybersecurity consultancy back in 2006, Secure Anchor. What did you learn from being an author and selling that first book? that you think translated uh, to the entrepreneurship world when you started Secure Anchor? To, to me with entrepreneurship, it really comes down to understanding who your target market is and what their needs are. And, and that's one thing. It took me several books to sort of figure that out, but you can have the best book on the planet. You can have the best product on the planet, but if you're not clear on who your customer is, and it's not solving their problem, then nobody's going to buy it or nobody's going to buy your product. To, to, to me, what I've learned is that essentially, if people are going to spend money or spend time on anything, it's essentially going to be in one of two areas, either to provide pleasure or to alleviate pain. Now, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I don't have a big enough ego to know that I don't think anyone's going to buy my books in order to have pleasure, right? That, that, that's not the goal. They go to Disney World for that, right? That, that's why Disney World and cruise ships make so much money because it fills that need. But my, my focus is on the pain. So what I've really learned is in my company and in, in writing all my books is really getting clear of who do I want to help? What is their pain point? And then make sure that in every single chapter, I'm really focusing in on solving that issue. Because, you know, I think it's only 10% of people that pick up a book actually finish it. And mm -hmm. the reason, in my opinion, is they get bored. It didn't solve or meet the expectations. You have a lot of these books that have these great titles, but then when you get into it, it doesn't meet up to the hype. So you want to make sure that in every chapter, when you're finishing it, you're giving them enough value that they want to go in and read the next chapter. And same thing with clients. Anytime you deliver a service or a product to a customer, you want to make sure that you over deliver to a point that you're setting yourself up to provide additional services to them. Hmm. So in the, the book world, you mentioned people who purchase these books, maybe only 10% actually finish them, but 
you get 100% of the sales, whether or not they actually finish the book, right? So as an author, how do you measure your own satisfaction with a book that you've written? Is it the amount of knowledge that people actually capture? Is it the number of copies sold? What is most important to you? So to me, it comes down to that the first number is copy sold, because ultimately that's going to say, did you at least identify your target market and understand the pain that they're willing to purchase the book? So that's the first one. The second one is if they then go in and follow me on a social media or other aspect, uh, the third one is if they actually reach out to me. That, that, that's the best one. So if I put out a book and it sells 20,000 copies, but I don't hear anything, like no, nobody ever says anything, nobody posts anything, nobody puts a review, nobody contacts me, it's going to sort of make me scratch my head going, okay, did it really meet that need and really help mm-hmm. that audience? So I'm very big on the feedback aspect in which social media can help out a lot. And then just one, uh, one small correction. You said if somebody buys a book, you get 100% of the revenue. Actually, unless you, <laughs> unless you self-publish, uh, divide that by like seven or eight. Usually, depending on the publishers that you use and the, the bigger ones, you're typically getting anywhere between 10 to 12% of the overall wholesale price of the book. Yep. Good point. Good correction there. Okay. So, Looking back now on the last two decades or so since you published your first book, uh, how many books have you released now? Uh, I've released uh, seven and then my eighth one uh, actually comes out May 18th. And one of the things you'll notice is about three years ago, I sort of switched focus. So my first book, Hackers Beware, very technical. My next book, Network Security Bible, Edition one, technical, network security, Bible edition two, technical, uh, advanced persistent thread, hiding in plain sight, technical, technical, technical. And I, I felt at the time that that was the big need, that we needed to have a strong army of technical people. Now, there's still huge demand on the technical front, but what I'm realizing today is the reason why organizations are still getting compromised and still getting broken into isn't because they don't have smart technical people. It's because the non-technical people don't think they're a target, they don't understand they're responsible, and they don't understand how bad a problem it is. So with my seventh book about two years ago, Online Danger, I really focused on non-technical people. So parents, teachers, doctors, professors, things along those lines to really help educate them. And that worked well. But then as I was doing my analysis about a year and a half ago, I said, but wait a second. Businesses are the ones that are struggling. They don't have a good strategy because the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the vice president, the directors, they don't understand security. They don't think it's important. And if you look at the media, you're getting a very false impression of how bad the problem is. So that's hmm. when I decided to write Cyber Crisis, which is really focused on helping businesses understand what the problem set is and make the right decisions. Or as I like to put in the book a lot, smart people know the right answer. Brilliant <laughs> people ask the right questions. So Cyber Crisis is filled with a lot of questions that executives need to ask their CISO and technical team to make sure that the proper resources are being put on cybersecurity. Hmm. 
Like you said, two or three years ago, you had this realization that that businesses uh, were maybe the the key target of this problem. For some of your other books, what was it that inspired you to write them? It sounds like they're relatively spaced out over the course of the last 18, 19 years now. What was the process for deciding I'm going to write a new book, this is the topic I'm going to write about, and let me do it in the next six months? It was all of my technical books were really focused on creating world class security engineers. I love technology. I still love the technology. I, I love going in and performing a pen test or doing forensics or analyzing or securing systems. And I felt that in my teaching and keynotes that there were a lot of really smart people that didn't really understand how to be a world-class security engineer, what the technical roadmap is. Like a lot of times with pen tests, people just sort of randomly look for a smoking gun, but they're not finding all the vulnerabilities. So they're not really delivering what the clients want. So I went in and developed a comprehensive methodology that allows them to make sure they find all the vulnerabilities and exceed customers' expectations. So it was really all focused on creating world-class security engineers And then a couple of years ago, what I started realizing is there's a lot of training, there's a lot of resources, and there's a lot of people focused on world-class security engineers. One thing I always do in my career, I love to be that early adopter. I love to get into areas before they are major. So I I wrote one of the first uh, books pretty much right after all of the Hacking Exposed series with George Kurtz and them. I mean, they hit the market and then mine came out shortly after that. So Mm. what I decided was what we really need is world-class chief information security officers. And contrary to what people think, world-class security engineers do not make world-class security officers. So the (laughs) book and what I've been doing is really, I switched from a tactical, technical to now a strategic role of how do I go in and create and train world-class security officers so they can actually educate and work with the executives to implement security correctly into organizations. Now, as you've transitioned into some of these books that are less less technical, how have you used things like empirical evidence or quantitative data to support the claims that you're making, which are more, I will say, process or, or people focused and oftentimes more subjective? So I, I focus on two key areas. To me, when you're looking at risk or cybersecurity, you're trying to determine the likelihood of something happening in the future. So if you knew it was going to happen, if it was a guarantee, it wouldn't be risk. And what I realized is studying other industries like insurance and other entities that deal with this actuaries is that the two best predictors are going to be historical data and comparative data. So one thing that I spent a lot of time in researching the book Cyber Crisis was really going in and saying, okay, historically, what's the problem? Why are organizations getting broken into? And if you go back and look at a lot of the major breaches from some of the healthcare breaches, hospital breaches, and even recent breaches, in almost over 92% of those cases, the reason why the adversary broke in is there was a server that was accessible from the internet that they didn't know about. It was missing patches. It contained critical data that wasn't properly encrypted. 
So now if you're going in and you're working on businesses or others, you need to make sure that you understand and ask questions. What is our critical data? Where is it located? And making sure that your security team does have proper asset inventory in place. So it's really using a lot of the historical cases to say, what is the commonality of all these breaches? And then what is that kingpin area that if a company fixed would stop the breaches from happening? As you wrote Cyber Crisis, was there anything that stuck out to you from your research that you might have known or felt the extent of before, but not fully realized uh, the, the impact or influence? Probably the biggest thing that really jumped out at me is how bad the problem is and how mm. little people are aware of that. So I, as I'm researching the book Cyber Crisis, you're going in and seeing time and time again where these companies are compromised for over three years and not detecting the attack. Your critical infrastructure has gotten very vulnerable because air gaps was the main level of protection. And for functionality, especially with the COVID, they've actually taken away air gaps, but they haven't increased or implemented other security measures. So just when you're going in and really landscaping the threat, which is the beginning of the book, I'm going, man, things are a lot worse than we realize. But most people have no idea of how targeted, how many systems are exposed, and how long attacks go undetected because we're not looking in the right places. Hmm. So by the time that you're now writing Cyber Crisis, and like you mentioned, set to be published May 18th, uh, by the time this episode actually airs, what were some of the challenges that you faced writing this book that maybe you hadn't experienced before? And why was that? So the first big challenge was how do I write a book? Because I finished writing it. When you write books, typically from when you finish to when it's published is anywhere from nine to 12 months. That, that's just, unless you self-publish, you can get them out quicker. But if you're dealing with a large New York City publisher, that's going to typically be the time frame. So it's one of those situations where how do I write a timely book that's very applicable with real-world examples that will still be relevant in 12, 24, and 36 months. So that, that was where I probably spent the most time rewriting and adjusting and adapting chapters to say, okay, how can I make it technically correct, but still applicable for a long period of time? And, and that was probably that, that biggest challenge there. The other one was, and I had to have a lot of people review it, is even though I've been a CISO, I understand businesses. I know how they work. I've been on the strategic side, 100% focused for about five years. Hmm. I was on the technical side for over 20 plus years. <laughs> so a lot of things that I just think is common knowledge. And I wrote it going, oh, of course, everyone would understand this. And then I had some of my friends that were CEOs and uh, admirals and generals, and they would read it going, Eric, this isn't English. <laughs> and, and I had to go back and go, oh, yeah, I, I guess uh, filtering and firewalls and architecture, that those are not necessarily common terms that an executive would understand. So I had to go back and really rework it so it truly is written in business language and not technical. How did you balance 
kind of filtering down that language without watering it down to the point that it's unuseful for technical people as well. So one of the things I always do when I work on a chapter is I, I break down the high-level sections. So I say, okay, uh, what are the eight or nine sections that I want to cover in this? And then for each of those, and the temptation is you want to start writing right away, but I've learned the lesson the hard way, is I say, okay, what are the three key takeaways that they have to get in each section for this section to be valuable to that person? So I'm basically setting up my anchor points saying, I must make sure that I get across these three points in this section. And with nine sections and three points, that means in a given chapter, they're going to get between 25 to 30 actionable takeaways. So by always going back saying, did I achieve those three bullets? Yes. Check the box. No. Move on. That's how I was able to make sure that I kept it at the right balance. And then the other key thing is having people in your target audience review and providing feedback. So I had, as I mentioned, CEOs, directors, lawyers, folks that I wanted to target the book at. And I would just ask each of them, hey, is there any chance this week you could read 10 pages? And I had enough of them that I could cycle through it. And if they read the 10 pages and said, "Eh, it's okay, it's pretty good, I rewrote it. If they go, Eric, this was great because I learned X, Y, and Z. And they actually were able to come with those talking points. I check the box and I move on. So it's really about having the anchor points, having a clear plan, and then getting external validation. Interesting. So we've talked a good amount now about the authorship and and editing process. What have you found to be most successful in actually marketing your books? Uh, Finding amazing people like Kyle. (laughs) <laughs> that will let you go on, the, on their show. I, I, I really find podcasts where you can actually have a conversation, explain the book, the topic, and get it out there is really probably one of the best mechanisms. Uh, also within PR, radio and TV is good, but, but often you're focused more on cutting edge stories and not really being able to give the story or the details behind your book. So it's really just mm. getting out there being visible, getting on as many shows, on many mailing lists, uh, calling as many people as I can just to make people aware of the book. Because let's face it, if they're not aware of the book, they can't buy it. So the more awareness, the better. So I do appreciate and thank you for for helping me uh, share the story and getting the word out there. Absolutely. I hope that this helps all kinds of aspiring authors out there and maybe provides a new perspective. And so we are getting close to, to wrapping up and that's a great segue. What tip based on all your experience, if you'd only give one tip, what tip would you give to an aspiring author that's thinking about writing a book? My advice would be write one book. Don't try to write 20 books in your memoirs. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is but my first book, Hackers Beware, it was 1,200 pages, and I was trying to make it perfect, right, to have all my wisdom and all my knowledge and everything possible, and it ended up being much longer than it should have. All of my recent last four books are three to 350 pages. So don't go in and try to take on too much. 350 pages is a perfect book. Write another book, but don't 
worry about trying to get all your knowledge in there. Stay focused, get clear on what messages you want to get across, pick a topic that's about 350 pages, write it, get it out there, complete it, and then you can worry about writing your next book. But I work with so many authors that I have one now. He's been writing his book for three and a half years. And he's like, Eric, I'm almost done. And I'm like, stop it. I said, give me the current manuscript. I'm going to edit it and we're publishing it. I don't care. You've been working on it for three years. Enough is enough, right? You got to <laughs> get your book out to the world. Don't overthink it. So why do you say 350 pages is the optimal size? That, that seems to be what most publishers are looking for. If you go in and you look at uh, a lot of the books, well, if you, if you do go to a bookstore now with uh, the epidemic and everything, but, but if you look <laughs> at most of your books, most of the books seem to be around that 350 margin. And the other thing is they've done a lot of research on this. And just based on how people think, if somebody picks up this really thick book with really small font, your mind is immediately trying to protect you going, you're never going to read that. That's going to take too long. You don't have enough time. You have 15 episodes of Game of Thrones you got to watch. It's not going to happen. But if you pick up a smaller book that's about three, 350 pages and you flip through it, you're like, yeah, I, I could get through this. And, and, and therefore, you're more likely to buy it because it seems like something that's digestible that you could actually finish. So the, there's a whole lot of psychology that these publishers have done. And once again, things always change, but at least right now, if you notice most of the new books coming out are typically in that range. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're getting towards the end here. Where can people find your book when it does come out May 18th? Uh, the best place to go is cybercrisisbook.com. That's a website. It gives you some more details about the book, gives you the table of contents, some information, and then it gives you the options of where you can buy the book from. I know some people like Amazon, it's actually available for pre-order, some like other bookstores. So if you just go to cybercrisisbook.com, you can pre-order it. And then as soon as the book is released, it'll drop ship right to your house or office. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure cybercrisisbook.com makes it in the show description as well. Eric, thank you again so much for your time today and, and best of luck with the, the book sales. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty and you've been listening to Secure Ventures. 